and it's worth uh, turning back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, the second half of which we're looking at today, uh, page 1155 in the church Bibles, 1155, and on the back of the service sheets is a, a bit of an outline of where we're heading as we look at that together. 1 Corinthians 14, page 1155. We're continuing our journey uh, through the letter of 1 Corinthians. It's a journey, actually, we as a church have been uh, in uh, on and off uh, over the last two years. Two years it's taken us uh, to get to this point. We're near the end of the letter uh, here in chapter 14 and today we come to the end of a, a section that we've been in for the last few weeks that began back in chapter 12, verse 1 and it's worth if you've got Corinthians open now, flicking to chapter 12, verse 1, to see the focus of this section. Paul has been dealing with a number of different issues that the Corinthians have raised in a letter to him and this one is about spiritual gifts or more literally spiritual things, the things of the spirit, what makes a person spiritual, a church spiritual. And you may remember if you were here a few weeks ago when we looked at chapter 12 in verse 3 of that chapter, Paul gave us a definitive picture of the spirit's work. The Spirit's single-minded ambition is to deepen and widen the knowledge that Jesus is Lord. That is what he is about in each one of our lives, in the life of this church and in our world. The mark of a spiritual person is the one who in life and lip confesses, Jesus is my King. And then we saw as we went along in chapter 12 that this mighty Spirit is so powerful that he forms a body out of those who confess Jesus as Lord a body that he then showers with gifts, wonderful gifts, diverse gifts that we can make much of Jesus together with. And then in chapter 13 we saw the way such gifts should be used in this gathering, uh, used in the way of love, the way of our king, self-sacrificial, other person-centred love, uh, a church filled with those who are towards others as Jesus is towards us. As we continued in chapter 14, we saw Paul spell out in even more detail what it means for a church to be spiritual, a church that is walking in the way of love with the remarkable question we saw last week in 14 verse 6. A spiritual church is filled with those who are asking this question of one another, what good will I be to you today? What benefit can I bring to those around me? And as we turn to the last part of 14 from verse 26 onwards, we're zooming in even more to see what a spiritual church looks like in the nitty-gritty, in the detail of their typical Sunday gathering. What does a church, a spiritual church, actually do when they get together of a Sunday? Well, that's the question before us today as we look at this passage. When we come together, what should shape our meeting? What are the things that we should be doing together? How do we decide that? I imagine in a gathering of this size there are inevitably different ideas of what would make this a good meeting, the sort of pieces that need to be there to make this meeting work best, to have it be a great meeting that we could leave thinking that was a spiritual gathering. Now for some you may happen to like a formal meeting. A spiritual gathering, one that honours God, is one that has a predictable liturgy. You may think that is what would be spiritual. But then there are others who would be the exact opposite in this gathering this morning. For them, a a more informal meeting is a spiritual meeting, one that isn't predictable, that is, uh, you're unsure what's coming next, it's spontaneous, it's lively, Uh, more people are involved, not just some talking head in a collar up the front. Uh, You may say, yes, that for me is a spiritual gathering. 
Or perhaps it's not about the style of meeting, it's more specific, it's the music choices we make. For some, uh, music is spiritual in a gathering like this if it is accompanied by pulsating guitar and bass and drums, if it's lively, not stolid old hymns. For others, of course, it's the exact opposite. That sort of music is nothing more than a confused din compared to the sublime stirrings of organ or choral worship. Or perhaps it's clothing that we spiritualise. For some, a spiritual meeting requires someone who actually looks like a vicar. Uh, Then for the typical Australian, a a typical vicar, someone who looks like a vicar is wearing flip-flops and a T-shirt. There's nothing wrong with preferences. Uh, But our problem starts when we start to evaluate, uh, elevate our preferences such that uh, we think God shares them with us. The truth is it doesn't matter and make any difference to God whatsoever what kind of music we play or whether there is a collar or tie at the front or not. It may well matter to my brother or sister and as we've seen in this letter, that is something I need to be very careful and take into account as I decide how to operate in a meeting like this. I need to make sure I'm doing no harm to another. But if we think we're being spiritual by adopting one style over another, then we have a profound misunderstanding of what spirituality and a spiritual church is. 1 Corinthians, as we've seen, is a letter written to people who have a very definite idea of what a spiritual meeting involves. But as we come to the end of this section, we see what really matters when a church gathers together. And it has nothing to do with that formal liturgy or informality or the type of meeting or the type of building or music that's played. It's something different altogether. Verse 26, you see it there. What then shall we say, brothers? And when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. You see, when the Corinthians first started meeting together as a church, they didn't have a formal building or even a formal time they met and they didn't have thousands of years of tradition that sort of told them, this is what you're meant to do when you gather like this. But they'd made the effort to gather together. They knew they were united in Christ. They knew they were called to love one another and express that by gathering But now that they're there together, what next? What do we do? Should we start with a song perhaps or maybe a time of sharing, perhaps communion first? The truth is, verse 26, there are many different things that might happen when we meet. For everyone has brought something to share. Some have perhaps brought a hymn. Perhaps someone has written a hymn. Someone like Peter Turnbull has written a hymn for us to sing together. Or perhaps you've come to church humming your favourite hymn thinking, I hope we sing that one. Or a word of instruction. Perhaps someone has worked during the week reflecting on the gospel and has something to teach the church. Or a revelation, some sort of insight into the nature of our God and his gospel that they want to share with others. Or a tongue and perhaps an accompanying interpretation of that tongue. Now it's important to see this list in verse 26. It's not a prescriptive list. Paul isn't saying you need to have all of these things to have a spiritual meeting. The truth is that there's probably many more things that people could bring other than are listed here. But it's a great picture, isn't it, of a church gathering. It's more like a bring and share meal than a restaurant. Now here's our first challenge, I think. Do you come to a Sunday gathering like that? As you come through the doors at 11am or perhaps to your small group, uh, do you come bringing something to share? 
We wouldn't uh, go to a, a, um, a bring and share meal empty-handed, but would we be prepared to come here empty-handed? Come here as if to a restaurant? Or do you come on a Sunday morning with the mindset that today, either in word or deed or attitude of heart, I'm looking to bring something to share with others? But if we all did that, and that's a challenge in itself, but if we all did that, there's a problem, isn't there? If everyone is bringing something to share, what do we do first? Whose thing that they've brought to share do we go with? How do we decide what to focus on? Do we just sort of sit around and wait for a sort of an extroverted person to sort of kick us off and then we all chime in and everyone's trying to do their thing and chaos? Well, what's the answer? Well, the answer isn't that everyone does their own thing or that we all come up with what we've brought, looking for our moment, our 15 minutes. Now, while there's an abundant diversity of what we may bring to a gathering, there ought to be a unity of purpose. It's the one that we saw last week in verse 6, the question, what good will I be to you? Well, that question is now sharpened for us in verse 26. The common good I should long to be for others, do you see it there in verse 26? Everything we bring should be for the strengthening or literally the building of the church. We are to prioritise whatever is done by one single purpose, building Christians. Everything we bring is to be brought to strengthen their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to strengthen their love for one another, to build in them a stronger and stronger hope of their eternal home. This gathering is not an opportunity for me to do my thing. This is not forwards got talent. Let all be done for the building of the church. Now, this is another huge challenge for us, isn't it? First uh, was to have, uh, in the first place, the mindset to seek to bring something to share with others. Now we have the challenge, once we're convinced that we should bring something, to bring it not for our own good, but for the good of others. Now, for the rest of the chapter, what Paul is going to do is he's going to give us two examples of how that might work in the church, two gifts that we might bring with us and how we can order them in the life of our church such that they, such that they would build us up. And as we do, uh, we need to keep in mind what we've seen in verse 26. We need to see that the church is more like a bring and share meal. And as we come to this bring and share meal, we need to realise that the Spirit of God has planned this meal very carefully. Maybe not as we would. Maybe asking us to bring things that we wouldn't naturally bring or even calling you not to bring something that you would be eager to bring to such a meal. But he has taken great care to order things just as he in his wisdom would have them to be. And we are to respond with obedience to his very good purposes. And so let's see how that obedience would play out as God orders his meeting we're going to see two examples. You see them on the outline there. The first is well-ordered tongues, verse 27. It's not an example that we might immediately pick if we're thinking, what are the sort of things that we want to think? How do we arrange that in our church life? We might not immediately go for this one, but this was a pressing issue for the Corinthians. What if you came to the gathering eager to speak in tongues? Well, God says in verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue... Two or at the most three should speak, one at a time and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. The first thing to notice, uh, when instructing on the use of tongues in the gathering, Paul says, if, 
Now, given what we saw last week of the extremely limited value of tongues in the church to build others up, that's not their purpose, it's to build the person speaking them up. These instructions are by way of concession, not encouragement. He says it again in verse 39. His encouragement, if you like, on tongues is, well, I don't forbid them. Be eager to speak, uh, prophesy and don't forbid tongues. This is concession. And that's vital for the Corinthians to grasp. For them, uh, tongues were a key part of their gathering. Of course you can't have a meeting without tongues. Well, if someone does want to speak in tongues, Paul says, they shouldn't be forbidden. But there are clear restrictions. It's to be limited to, or at the most, three. This isn't meant to take over the meeting. This is just to be one small part if it's to be included. And it's to be ordered one at a time. And it must be clear. It must be, as we saw last week, interpreted. Otherwise, it's useless to others. And so if we were to want to speak in tongues and there is no interpreter or we can't interpret it, then we should, we're told, keep quiet. And these verses confirm what we had seen earlier in the chapter, that speaking in tongues is not an important means of building other Christians, which is, of course, the goal of our gathering. Tongues don't in and of themselves bring edification to others. The, the only thing that builds Christians is understood words about the Lord Jesus. Now let me say at this point, while tongues might not be the issue that we're directly concerned with mostly here, this ought to apply to everything we do. The, me- the measure by which we decide whether something is worth doing and how often and for how long in our meetings is to be based on its contribution to our big purpose. Does this build us up? And there may be a lot of things that we do that we would say we must have that in our meeting that are actually optional. If we continue to do them, we need to see their limited value and place restrictions on them such that they won't take over and they will edify. Now before we move to the second example, there's a question worth asking I think at this point. I don't know about you, but as I read through this uh, passage this week, uh, the, the obvious question is it all seems so deliberately ordered. Why all this order? Why such regulation? Why is it so strict? And surely that dampens the spirit's fire. Surely all this order suffocates a vibrant life in a church meeting and it doesn't allow for things to happen. Surely there's nothing spiritual about such order here. Isn't it more just a pragmatic response that Paul has had to make to a particular problem in Corinth? Well, the answer is no, there is nothing spiritual about order if by order we are talking about the style of service or music or building or dress code. But when it comes to the order outlined here and the order that we will see in our second example, it is profoundly spiritual. Have a look at verse 33 and there you'll see why. Such a key verse for us today. God is not a God of disorder but peace. The testimony of the scriptures from the very first verses right to the end is how God by his spirit creates a very good order out of chaos. He creates a world where things are ordered to fit together in such a way as they flourish in their purpose. Why would we be surprised that his most wonderful creation, the church, is ordered according to his very good purposes? And the key to this order, you see, it is, it's not arbitrary structure for its own sake. Uh, let's just have some sort of structure. No, it's about relationship. 
Now look again at verse 33. God is not a God of disorder but order. No, he doesn't say that. God is not a God of disorder but peace. Peace is a relational word, shalom, relationships that flourish because of the way God has ordered their arrangement. Relationships that operate in a dynamic of peace, not friction. God is a God of those sort of relationships. Not a God of disorder, but peace. We saw this back in chapter 11, uh, that God in himself is Trinity. Three persons, Father, Son, Spirit in relationship. Equal in dignity, but in distinct in role, an ordered fellowship, a peaceful fellowship. We saw there that the Son does nothing of himself, only what he sees his Father doing. We saw that the Father loves the Son and has given all things to him. We saw that the Spirit speaks of the Son and one day the Son will hand back the kingdom to the Father. We'll see that in chapter 15 of this letter. And so the church is ordered because God himself is ordered. And the church, which is his gathered people, is ordered for we are made and now redeemed in his image. And so Christian, feel the weight of the order outlined in these verses. This isn't that order of some pragmatic bureaucracy. God is not your local council rep. He is the Lord of heaven and earth who created a diverse world, each with an ordered role, and it was very good. And so that his church is ordered is not merely functional or cultural or traditional, it's theological, that is, of the logic of our God. Well, let's turn to his second example, well-ordered prophecy. Now, we've spent a fair bit of time in recent weeks looking at prophecy, so I don't want to rehearse all the things that we've looked at together, but by way of quick recap, at the start of this chapter, in verses 3 and 4, we saw what prophecy involves. It involves intelligible words spoken primarily for the benefit of others. Words, verse 3 says, that are spoken to strengthen and encourage and comfort. Now, what a wonderful gift God gives his church. No wonder he says in verse 39, be eager to prophesy Given that the purpose of our meetings is to strengthen one another, here is a gift that is designed to do that. Now let me say, I believe this is a church where much prophecy goes on. It's happening on so many different levels. It happens when we meet like this. It happens when we gather after a service. It happens in our small groups and when we meet each other for coffee or bump into each other in the street. It can happen in any of those contexts. It happens in our parish council meetings. And it's more than some sort of vague encouragement. It is deeply Christian. It is intensely Godward speech. Words that uh, speak the gospel of Jesus into a situation. But what about more formal meetings? How how can we order that part of our church life when it comes to prophecy? Well, verse 29 says this. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. Two things. It needs to be ordered and it needs to be weighed carefully. And what Paul does is he then fleshes out these two things that that prophecy needs to be. Firstly, it needs to be ordered and he fleshes that out, explains that in verses 30 to 33 for us. And it needs to be weighed and he fleshes that out in verses 33 to 35. That's what Paul is doing. Here's a summary sentence in verse 29 and then he will expand on both of them in turn. So firstly, it needs to be ordered. Two or three prophets should speak. How? 
Well, verse 30, if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. That's a wonderful picture, isn't it? This for me is the ultimate description. If you're looking for a description of a small group, here it is. Each with a word of strengthening, encouragement and comfort to share with others. No one dominating. And the leader moving things on appropriately after one or two or three people have said a few things about a particular verse, moving us on to see more and encourage each other more. Well, what about the church setting? It's hard in our setting, isn't it, in a, in a gathering of this size? How do we do that sort of encouragement for one another? Well, for starters, for me, that's why our small groups are so vital. But even beyond that, we are endeavouring to do this more as a church. A number of times in recent months at the end of series at the 6.30 service we have had this very thing, two or three, standing up to bring a word of strengthening or encouragement or comfort, words that have come out of the things that we've seen together in the series that we've been in. Men and women standing up the front to encourage this church family. What What a great moment that is. Now, of course, the important thing, as Paul says in these verses, is for those who bring a word of prophecy, be it in a small group or even on a Sunday, to be aware of others who may also want to share, to aim always at encouragement and instruction and to keep control of your words. It needs to be ordered and secondly, it needs to be weighed, carefully weighed, verse 29 says. It needs to be weighed because when words are spoken in the church, they matter, don't they? Because those who hear words in the church are incredibly precious to God. Now listen to these sobering, uh, state, this sobering statement that is in the ordinal uh, for priests, uh, those who are ordained as presbyters in the Church of England. These are words said to them, words that were said to me when I was ordained. Have always therefore printed in your remembrance how great a treasure is committed to your charge. For they are the sheep of Christ which he bought with his death and for whom he shed his blood. The church is his spouse and his body and if... If it shall happen that the same church or any member thereof do take any hurt or hindrance by reason of your negligence, ye know the greatness of the fault and also the horrible punishment that will ensue. That's enough to keep you up at night. And so it should. We are to take seriously the instruction to weigh prophecy. How does that work though? How do we weigh carefully the words said in the church? Who are these others who will weigh? Well, let me say two things. First, as a general point, and then more specifically, as Paul does here. Firstly, I think all should weigh the words spoken in the gathering. The Corinthians were called to weigh the words said by the apostolic gospel that they were told to hold to in chapter 11. They were to guard that gospel. And we're to do the same, the the once and for all gospel that has been handed down to us. So let me encourage you to be in the habit of weighing what is said from this pulpit. Don't just think, oh, well, he's, he's one of the staff, he's telling the truth. Test it, weigh it, check it. Do the same in your small groups. But there's something more specific about this weighing that is said for us as he fleshes us out in verses 33 to 35. Beyond the, the general weighing that we should all be a part of, there are those who are called upon in the church to the role of eldership. The, the task of guarding the gospel, who are not only to weigh such prophecy quietly as we all should, but they are the ones who are called to speak up, 
to either affirm it or especially to speak up when prophecy or a word in the church is said that denies the gospel and so could damage the church that Christ died for. They are those who are called upon to make judgments over prophecies, to speak up as watchmen, the ordinal says, of the church that God has bought with his blood. And as to who should have that role, Paul is very clear, isn't he, verse 33. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now there's much I would like to say on these verses and time will allow us to say some of that. But let me encourage you as a start to, uh, if you weren't here a few weeks ago when we looked at 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16 together, to go back to get the, uh, the sermon either from the website or for a copy from the church centre because there in chapters 2 to 16 Paul lays some crucial foundations for what he says in these verses, showing us that the, uh, the nature of the relationship between men and women and the roles they have in the church uh, is founded not only in the nature of our God but in the way he has made us as creatures. And so what Paul says here is based on that foundation. Let me say a few things specifically about these verses. Firstly, these, as I said before, are verses fleshing out the second instruction of verse 29, that prophecy should be weighed carefully. It's not saying that women should never speak in church. Now, God's word was clear about that in chapter 11. There we saw women fully involved in the prayer life and the prophecy life of a church, speaking in the church. But the Lord says here that they may not participate in the oral weighing of prophecy. They're not permitted to adopt the role of judging such prophecy, speaking up as an elder or a watchman should do. Now this is the case not because of some cultural reason or not because of a particular problem in Corinth. We're told here it's because of God's law. God's word has made it this way. And the law Paul refers to here is the same one he refers to elsewhere when speaking on this same issue. He did in chapter 11, he does in 1 Timothy 2, it's Genesis chapter 2, it's the very nature of the way he has made us as men and women. There in that passage God establishes a creational order of headship of men over women. The relationship of men and women is to reflect God's nature, a peaceful, harmonious relationship. And in the case of men and women, men are to lead in servant-hearted love and women are to submit to that love. Now Paul says here that this needs to be expressed in the way we meet. And so the task of orally weighing prophecy, God has given that role to men, some men, elders who are set aside for that task. Now this is a point he makes elsewhere in 1 Timothy chapter 2 where he does not allow women to accept a church-recognised leadership role that involves teaching or governance of the church. Now, from these verses, it is clear that Paul regards the careful weighing of Scripture as coming under such a job description. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, women weren't to question things that were said or seek further clarification or understanding, but there were appropriate ways to do that. As speaking with their recognised head, the relationship they were in, for wives, it was their husbands. And let me say, I think the implication is also for unmarried women in the church to have that same freedom, to be able to appropriately and in a way that is welcomed to come and question things by the recognised leaders of the church, to come and speak to them, to ask questions, to clarify, to question.
question what has been said. God has ordered his church in such a way that men and women have very different and complementary roles in the life of the church. There are many roles that they share together, such as prayer and prophecy, but some not. And the leadership of the church, especially in regards to weighing words against the gospel and speaking that judgment, he gives to some men, appointing in the church as those who would oversee the gathering in that way. And finally, uh, let me say this, when Paul says it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in this judging role in the church, he doesn't mean that if that happened in the church we'd all throw up our hands in horror. I suspect we'd be perfectly comfortable. No, he means that it is disgraceful in a far bigger way. The disgrace is felt in heaven. It is a disgraceful thing for a church to decide to order their life together in such a way that disregards God's command on these matters. To hear God's word and say we know better or doubt his goodness or think we've moved on. Now let me say at this point I'm feeling these verses acutely at the moment. I am uh, tomorrow night uh, attending uh, here at uh, a deanery synod and the purpose of that synod is to discuss the, the potential ordination of women as bishops in the Church of England. It's a discussion that will then feed into the general synod and they in the next year will decide on that, more likely at this stage decide to affirm that. I want to express personally what a tragedy I find these moves are. I love the Anglican Church, love it. I heard the gospel for the first time in one I became a Christian in the Church of England. I was discipled and grew up and matured in the Anglican Church. I was ordained with joy as a watchman in this church. I didn't join the Anglican church because it was a good boat to fish from. I'm a convinced Anglican minister. But our church is shrouding herself in disgrace on this issue. And I'm tired of feeling like one who, when he speaks on such an issue, is the one speaking disgracefully. For too long in the Church of England we have been worried about ignoring the views of diversity on such issues and far less worried about ignoring our God's word on this issue. It's time to fear him and not one another. Now Paul ends this passage with great concern that these words be taken seriously. He says in verse 36, if you think otherwise it must be because you are convinced that the word of God originates from you, from your mind, your community, your culture. And then he issues this warning. All of this is very serious, he says. If anyone thinks they are spiritual, if anyone wants to own that claim that Jesus is my Lord, here's your test. How do you view the apostles' words here? Are they mere advice? A culture-bound idea, perhaps? Or are they the commands of your king? Is this the Lord's command? That's serious, isn't it? For as Ecclesiastes 5 says, he is in heaven and I am on earth. So let my words of dialogue on his word be few compared to the time I spend listening to his word. Words here that I don't stand in judgment over, I don't stand aside of them, I sit under these words. I work hard, yes, at understanding them, then to believe them and so to obey them. For in obeying his words comes life. And here in this passage we're told to ignore the word of our king is to be ignored by him. What future lies for the Church of England? Let's pray.